and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight up to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. Now, it's impossible to be following recent news in the realm of military and defense and security issues and not be aware of the tension that exists between the United States and China. But if we look back to the days of World War II, the relationship between those two countries was very different, and air power played a key role in shaping that relationship. So today we're going to do that. We're going to go back and look at the role of air power in World War II in the theaters of China and Southeast Asia. So to do that, I'm joined today by Major Daniel Jackson, the author of Fallen Tigers, The Fate of America's Missing Airmen in China During World War II, from University Press of Kentucky. Dan is an active duty Air Force pilot who graduated from U.S. Air Force Academy in 2009 with a bachelor's in history and a minor in Chinese language, and he also earned a master's degree in history from Sam Houston State University in 2017. Dan, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Excellent. Well, let's dive right in. I think we like to start off by just asking, what got you into this project? Why study these downed air crews in China and what drew you to this topic? It really goes back all the way to when I was a cadet at the Air Force Academy as a history major. I had the opportunity to interview Major General John Allison, who was an ace in the 23rd Fighter Group in China during World War II, flying under Chenault in the organization that uh, took over from the Flying Tigers. I'd already been interested in the China Burma India Theater. I was put somewhat against my will into... Uh, be a Chinese language minor while I was there because all non-technical majors have to do a language. And so those things kind of fused in that area of history where you have this very interesting kind of counter culture to the big U.S. military that's fighting World War II, this, this uh, countercurrent to it in China. That It kind of spiderwebbed from there. He ended up linking me into the 14th Air Force Association. I ended up doing a lot of my papers on that theater of the war and ended up meeting a lot of these veterans. And that resulted in uh, the first book, which was a history of of a particular fighter squadron in China during the war. And then I had a follow-on book on that that talked about a joint Chinese-American campaign. And so throughout these, I ended up meeting a lot of these individuals, some of whom had been shot down behind enemy lines and had these fascinating stories that had been handled anecdotally, but had never been handled systematically. And so there was all this anecdotal information about what happened to these folks. Because you have, on the one hand, the treatment by the Chinese, which was overwhelmingly positive in those anecdotes. But on the other hand, you had these anecdotes about uh, the people that were captured and the horrible treatment by the Japanese as prisoners of war and everything. And it was really hard to figure out what the truth data was on how much of which those happened. So I thought it would be interesting for my master's degree to go back and actually document all of this, go through all of the missing aircrew reports and all of the evasion reports and, and basically database how many uh, folks were shot down, why they went down, whether it was enemy aircraft, enemy surface fire, weather, malfunction, et cetera. And then what happened to them? Were they killed? Were they captured? Are they still missing in action or were they rescued? And so that's kind of the evolution of that. So it was an evolution that took place really over a decade and a half. Yeah. And it seems like you've found some interesting trends there by putting all that together. Like the main thrust seems to indicate that more or proportionately more allied air crews in China made it back home alive than in other theaters and by a seemingly pretty big margin. So why do you think that is? It is a pretty big margin, and it's very surprising because culturally, we look at World War II and we have this very romantic view of these resistance movements in Western Europe, the French resistance, the Belgian resistance, etc. So we have this romantic view of them rescuing these airmen, getting them out from under the nose of the Gestapo or whatever, and getting them back to friendly lines. The truth on Western Europe, though, is only about a quarter of the guys that survived the crash or bailout, which in either theater remains about the same at about 50%. If you were shot down, you had about 
about a 50% chance of living through that experience. But then for those guys that went down in Western Europe, there's about a 25% chance, actually a little less of making it out back to friendly lines. Uh, whereas in China, if you survived the crash or bailout, it was over a 90% chance that you were going to make it back to friendly lines. Part of that has to do with the scale. You know, the scale of the European air war is a lot bigger than the air war in China. Part of it's also the nature of the conflict. In Western Europe, you didn't have the same feeling of colonialism that the, the Chinese feel like they're being uh, invaded by the Japanese. Certainly Western Europe felt invaded and everything, but politically, all those strains that existed in Germany, they didn't exist at the same level in those other Western European nations, but they existed. And so collaboration was a much bigger problem in Western Europe. And additionally, you have much better transportation infrastructure, etc. So policing was a lot easier for the Germans as well. In China, you have a much vaster space with a population that overwhelmingly supported getting these guys back to friendly territory. Surprisingly, even the people that were officially collaborating with the Japanese, the collaborationist Chinese government was helping American airmen make it back to friendly lines. It ends up being this, this cultural thing as opposed to a political thing where you have communists, nationalists, and collaborators all helping getting these guys back. Whereas in Europe, with the more political tinge, it ends up being much more complicated in that way. Yeah, you emphasize that level of kind of cooperation and coordination that happened on the ground with these air crews. Are there any kind of specific examples of that cooperation that really stood out to you as more than the others? Well, I think what stands out is that it always starts ad hoc. Even if you're talking about a place that has established rat lines to get people back to friendly territory, the initial interaction is almost always going to be ad hoc, where you have some random civilian or soldier Chinese person that ends up meeting face-to-face -face with these airmen from the get-go, right? And so that's usually ad hoc, where that person just decides to do something about this and then link them in through their leadership in their in their town or hamlet or whatever to these rat lines that pull them out. So there's there's both the ad hoc and the system that exists. The system develops over time through a couple of different means. First of all, you have various secret organizations that are propagating all across China. You've got the Sino-American Cooperative Organization that was working with the Nationalist Secret Police. You have the Dixie Mission, which ends up plugging in with the communists with Mao Zedong's headquarters up north. Uh, the OSS eventually gets involved out there. And then you have AGAS, the uh, air ground aid section of the 14th Air Force that is tasked by 14th Air Force to develop rat lines and uh, prepare people for evasion as well. So they're both briefing air crews, but also they're sending agents out into the field. There's some stories from Hanoi, for example, where they developed some of the best AGAS networks where people are basically fed into these rat lines that AGAS has gone and recruited all these agents to be able to flow people back into China and back to friendly air bases. So you, you have those things interacting. You have that initial reaction by sympathetic civilians, usually, who are acting out of their own best interest because reprisals happened. And when they happened, they were very severe. And then you have the system that starts to develop with organized Chinese networks that are interacting with organizers on the American side. Yeah, that web of organizations I think was a really interesting part of the book that jumped out at me. There's all these different groups that are kind of sometimes working together, sometimes not in these kind of mm -hmm. nebulous relationships, both from the command level all the way down to like the individual aircrew kind of level. One of the groups that came up a lot in the book was this guerrilla movement and these guerrilla fighters on the ground. Can you tell us who are these guerrilla fighters and how did they interact with air crews? Yeah, I think calling it a web is, is a good way to talk about it because it's messy. And at some levels, it appears to be disorganized 
organized or unorganized, but it kind of meshed and kind of worked. And you say guerrilla is very generic. There's so many different organizations playing in, and sometimes not even organizations, just normal people that were angry about Japanese occupation and took it upon themselves to mount armed resistance. So you've got the Kuomintang, the nationalists, then you've got various communist organizations like the East River Column near Hong Kong. You've got New Fourth Army in the Yangtze Valley. You've got the Eighth Root Army north of the Yellow River. And so there are all these organizations participating. And one of the interesting things that you find out with the rescue of down American airmen is like sometimes the only issue that these organizations agree on. Sometimes it's the only thing that they cooperated on. You had nationalists and communists fighting each other, but they were willing to cooperate to the degree to move the downed American air crew through there. And so, yeah, in a lot of these places in the book, I talk about in Jiangxi province, this very active guerrilla movement where you have these ex-government officials and uh, farmers that were forced from their land by the enemy advance and everything. And they basically go up into the mountains and form these guerrilla bands with guns that they find wherever they can, uh, some of them more than 100 years old, and uh, mount armed resistance and, and start developing networks to uh, facilitate uh, information flow so they can keep tabs on the Japanese troop movements. But these end up helping out these American airmen because, you know, the pilot will parachute into some random village and those civilians are already plugged into this guerrilla movement. So they hide the guy. They'll usually set him up with uh, some Chinese clothes and hide him in a shed or something and then just run for the nearest guerrilla unit that they know and start the process of getting him out. What are the dangers of, I mean, we can imagine what the dangers are, but like how much of a threat is it if you're a downed air crew in China and you're found by the wrong people? What kind of dangers would you be expected to fall into and how risky was that? So part of the problem from the get-go is even trying to figure out who you fell in with, because unlike in Europe, you're talking about something that is completely alien culturally to the American airmen that are operating there, right? These people don't look the same. They don't talk the same. And a lot of Americans could not even tell the difference between Japanese and a Chinese person. And likewise, the Americans are completely alien to the Chinese, who in some of the early encounters didn't know the difference between a Japanese person and an American, because they'd never seen a Caucasian before. And they don't understand even the remotest part about the language. And so part of getting through that were the tools that were gradually developed, like the pointy talkie and the blood shit to be able to communicate with these people and figure out just who you did run in with. But the, the dangers were pretty immense all the way through because not only do you have those barriers to communication, if you did fall in with the wrong people and you ended up in, the, in Japanese hands, you had a one in four chance of not surviving that experience either execution outright, which is documented a number of times, neglect, where they just didn't put resources to taking care of their POWs, which oftentimes ended up in, in malnutrition or, or other medical maladies that uh, went untreated and, and caused death, abuse by camp guards that just accumulated severe depression and hopelessness and and other things like that, killed in the process of escaping. There's even one airman that there's an allegation that uh, I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of, but according to a report by, it was, it was near the front lines in Southwest China where the Chinese were actively battling the Japanese. This guy was shot down by ground fire. The Chinese troops watch him descend under parachute and they watch the Japanese roll him up. So they know that he's in Japanese hands and there's no accounting for him after the war. You know, a lot of POWs, even the ones that didn't survive, there was some sort of accounting for them through Japanese records. This guy never made it into the system because he never made it past the frontline Japanese troops. And the allegation after the war was this very infamous Japanese colonel who had his hand in a, a number of alleged human rights abuses actually basically cut him open and ate his liver while he was still alive. So 
So even though a very, very small percentage of these airmen fell into Japanese hands, we're talking less than 5% of the, the folks that were declared missing during the war, the instances of, of abuses or grisly death were such that it formed an overwhelming anxiety in, in the minds of these airmen. That was one of their chief anxieties. I talked to one guy who said he shows up at his squadron and, and the squadron commander hands him a pistol. And he says, if you go down, take out as many of them as you can, but save one for yourself. And I talked to another guy who went down in this area of northern China and was rescued by the, the communists up there. And as he's on his way out, he comes across this old man who had witnessed the crash of one of his, his uh, friends the day before in the same place, actually, uh, near the same town. And it seemed like the guy probably died in the crash. It's unclear. But we, what we do know from this uh, Chinese eyewitness to what happened next was that the Japanese decapitated the head from the body and hung it over the city gates as a warning to the Chinese against helping Americans. My God. So... Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty grisly. The stakes were high. Well, you mentioned the uh, pointy talkie and the bloodshed. Tell us a little bit about what those are and how they would work. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because bloodshits are still used now by American forces the world over. What's interesting about China is it started after a couple of folks went down in southwest China and the local people who were not Han Chinese, they were a minority group that lives in southwest China that didn't speak Chinese very well in the first place and definitely didn't speak English or recognize Americans and were very confused when uh, folks started dropping into their midst. And so the idea was to basically have this chit that was stamped by the central government in China saying, this is a foreigner that's come to fight for China. Everybody needs to do their utmost to rescue and protect them. It's only, a, I think, a 12-character statement. It doesn't promise a reward of any kind. There are some later bloodshits from most of them from like 1944 on that say something about uh, reimbursement or compensation or reward. Those early ones, and for most of the war, the bloodshits that people were carrying promised nothing, and most of the folks that rescued people got nothing. It was just a simple statement uh, with the official chop of the Chinese Aer Aeronautical Affairs Commission that said, this guy's here fighting on our behalf. Ponitaki was a small booklet that you carried in your pocket that basically had a line of text in English right next to a line of text in Chinese with simple phrases like, take me to the gorillas, I need food or water, stuff like that. So Basically, you could walk up to a Chinese person, point at the line next to the English phrase that you're trying to say. They read the Chinese phrase. They look for their answer in Chinese. They point to it. You read the English next to it. Uh, and actually, a lot of evasion reports mention use of those tools. They were very useful. Even though illiteracy was still a problem in China, uh, they were still very, very useful tools for, for getting out of there. One of the points you've made that really jumped out at me is the kind of symbolic power that air power had in this theater that, you know, seeing aircraft above has this kind of morale effect. Can you talk a little bit about what Allied aircraft symbolized and, and how that played out and why? It was actually a very controversial issue with that theater. What was the symbolic role of aircraft? Did, was there a symbolic role of aircraft? And, and really a lot of the tragedy of the China-Burma-India theater is this rivalry that develops between General Stilwell and General Chenault, right? Where General Stilwell has this much more traditional plan for liberating China, which has to do with establishing a ground line of communications across Burma and then basically progressively stepping across China. I guess to understand where morale was at in China, you have to understand that since 1937, they've been subject to this continuing invasion and that it's been bogged down in stalemate for a long time. And that it's not just a quarter of the population that's under enemy occupation. That's also the richest parts of China, right? You then take from the richest parts of China, this vast horde of refugees that's now crammed into the poorest parts of China that is least well-equipped to feed and, and house and clothe those people. And so you have people living in abject poverty 
with no end in sight. You, you have basically the entire length of America's uh, participation in World War II before America gets involved in World War II. That's already happened in China, right? So things seem pretty dire there. And you look at things like the rape of Nanjing, you look at the brutal combat in Shanghai in 1937. You look at the desperate lengths that the Chinese government was willing to go through to stop the Japanese, like bursting the Yellow River dams and killing tens of thousands of their own people, hundreds of thousands by by some estimates of their own people to stop the Japanese. And yeah, I'd say by the time you get into 1942, 1943, morale is at a pretty low ebb. So one of the things that Chenault recognized and, and uh, Roosevelt got on board with was that having even small air action showing that there's still active resistance and, and that aid has come to China, that international friends are helping on their behalf, that had an outsized effect to whatever tactical effects those actions had. Yeah, that air raid on Taiwan, on Hong Kong, on Shanghai, the tactical effect might not be all that great, but the strategic effect from what it did for the Chinese people seeing that they were still in this, that resistance was still continuing because that air raid in Shanghai, those people had been out of the fight for what, eight years by then? seven or eight years. So it was that outsized influence that President Roosevelt and Chanel realized that air power had. They recognized that, but this rivalry continued to exist with Stilwell, who didn't see that. He didn't really see war from that level. He saw it from more of a progressive, linear kind of path level. And seeing things in that way, it's much more qualitative than quantitative, thinking about things like morale and, and what the full effect of this air raid might be beyond just a couple of bombs dropped on, on a warehouse here or there. In fact, a lot of the biggest raids in 14th Air Force history, the first raid on Hong Kong was not tactically effective. They hit one of the targets that they wanted to hit, took out, I think, a couple of hundred of Japanese soldiers that were there. But the docks, the power plants, all these other things that they were going after, minimal damage at best. But the strategic effect, when you look at the messaging campaign, when you look at the morale effect to the Chinese people that were in occupied Hong Kong was way out, out of proportion to what was achieved tactically. Yeah, that's such a good point. And now that you mentioned General Claire Chenault, I can feel all our listeners wanting to talk about him more because he's such a colorful personality associated with this theater, right? So tell us a little bit about Chenault and who he is and, and what role you see him playing in all this. Schnall, I think character is the right word for him. He was a unique individual. Another issue that I have with a lot of CBI literature is most of it's partisan in some way, like pro Stillwell anti Schnall, pro Schnall anti Stillwell, you know, pro American policy over there, uh, anti American policy over there, more favoring the communists, more favoring the nationalists. And really, every single side of that issue had good things and bad things going on. And that's true with Schnall as well. There were some really amazing things about him, and he was an extremely capable individual. Individual, but he had some big limitations as well in some ways that he failed grandly too, which I try and talk about and balance those things. But he was very interesting. He had become a fighter pilot during World War One. He didn't actually deploy out to the war, but he was finally able to train as a pilot after applying again and again and again and again and being told no, but he didn't stop. He knew what he wanted to do. And that's one of the things with Schnall is he's a determined guy. You can't tell him no. He's going to do what he's going to do no matter what he has to do. And that's one of the themes that we see across his life. And he sees air power differently than the establishment does in the years prior to World War II. You know, he's at the Air Corps Tactical School when the bomber mafia is there formulating this doctrine of unescorted, self-protecting daylight bombing formations, right? Uh, doing that, uh, hitting the pickle barrel from 30,000 feet, crippling the enemy war machine without requiring a big ground campaign to be the antidote to World War I. And of course, we know in retrospect, Europe still required the biggest amphibious invasion in the history of mankind. And a Russian invasion from the other front that dwarfed 
the biggest amphibious invasion of mankind. And, and so it, it didn't play out how they saw it. And obviously the self-defending bomber formations didn't play out the way they saw it. And so Chenault uh, is kind of the countercurrent to what's going on at Axe where he he says, no, you can stop these bomber formations. If you build a system for air defense, a system of spotters, and later the, the British kind of use this idea and, and overlay radar on top of it, even if you don't have a technically more advanced fighter, you can pre-position them when you know where these guys are coming from. You can ambush these formations. You can hit these bombers and disrupt their attacks before they get to the targets. Uh, and then conversely, that means that our bombers going to the targets need fighter escort to uh, protect them on the way in. And so he's preaching fighter tactics in a service that just fundamentally does not agree with that. And so he ends up getting out as a captain. His health wasn't the greatest either because he'd been flying open cockpit biplanes and uh, smoking way too much. <laughs> camel cigarettes and so he ends up getting out in 1936 and in 37 goes to china as an advisor to chiang kai-shek's government for the chinese air force the chongs both see air power as very essential they were thinking a little bit about japan but they were thinking more about uniting china kind of defeating the warlords and the communists creating a unified nation and so they hire him and he shows up and within weeks the marco polo bridge incident happens and china's in full-blown war with the japanese and suddenly he has a lab laboratory to test out his ideas. And he builds this air raid warning network around Nanjing, the nationalist capital at the time. And even though the Chinese have this hodgepodge fleet of airplanes and poorly trained pilots, they're able to just decimate the first Japanese bomber formations by using this uh, warning network. One of the claims was for, I think, 54 Japanese airplanes shot down in three days in August of 1937 using this warning network. And so it worked. But the Japanese got the message too, and they started sending fighter escort. And that fighter escort just decimated the Chinese Air Force. Interestingly enough, he keeps building this network because even when you can't position fighters, it still gives the people in the towns that are getting bombed by the Japanese time to get to air raid shelters or, or whatever. But what's really interesting is kind of this, on an article of faith, Schnell kind of leads this effort in China where they continue to build this spider web of a warning network and they build this huge airfield infrastructure across the country, over 400 airfields uh, all over China when there's no air force. So that by the time the United States gets involved, all these pieces are already in place for these American airplanes to take advantage of it and take the fight to the Japanese that just wouldn't have happened if this prep work didn't happen over years, years and years and years of this stalemate in China, where there is effectively no Chinese Air Force and hundreds of thousands of Chinese civilians are building airfields and stockpiling fuel and uh, setting up observer networks. And that's probably one of the, the most amazing things about Chenault is that he was first of all, uh, able to work in this completely different cultural context and get them on board with his idea, but that he was able to transmit his faith in what would ultimately happen with this outside intervention by the United States and that they were able to prepare for it, that it was proactive instead of reactive. So that by the time President Roosevelt gives his assent to the American Volunteer Group, everything else is already in place. And the American Volunteer Group is able to do outsized damage to their little size compared to their little size to the Japanese. And so what's amazing is that Schnaltz, a retired captain, called a colonel because I think the state of Kentucky or something gave him some sort of honorific so that the Chinese could call him a colonel, but he's not served in any field grade rank in the United States military. As a retired captain, he ends up as the group commander for this clandestine fighter group, the American Volunteer Group, uh, which becomes known as the Flying Tigers, and then happens to have all those pieces in place prior to Pearl Harbor. So when Pearl Harbor happens, he has basically the only effective American air outfit in the war. Everybody else is, is getting the snot kicked out of them by the Japanese. But Chenault's got 
all the pieces in play. He knows the Japanese tactics. He's got the airfield set up. He has the observer network set up. He had time to train his pilots in the tactics that he needed them to use. And it just all comes together so that quickly he's uh, reinstated in the uh, Army Air Forces as a colonel. Shortly after that, promoted to brigadier general. And in March of 1943, becomes a major general in charge of his own numbered air force. And his ability to counter the Japanese and to anticipate the Japanese from his long, hard combat over the years with them is just unparalleled. And the way that he grasped the Chinese mindset and the Chinese morale and the importance of these raids, even when they were just pinpricks and being able to work with them to the tune of even being able to stand up a new Chinese air force through an air advising effort over there during the war, concurrently with unilateral U.S. operations, was just unprecedented. But conversely, without the emphasis on reform that was badly needed in the nationalist government, you end up with this big disaster. And in the nationalist army, you end up with this big disaster in the Ichigo campaign where the Japanese just pushed through the middle of China, and the only effective resistance was from the air, and that was insufficient by itself. And Chanel never really acknowledged that, that air power couldn't go it alone against that. And so what's ironic is that he shared some of the downfall of his Axe brethren, the bomber mafia, that saw air powers being able to go it alone. It kind of helped precipitate that big disaster in central China that not only did irreparable damage to the war effort in China, all these plans for using China as the base for Japan, all these plans for the strategic bomber offensive from China to hit Japan, they just fizzled at that point because the Japanese captured all these airfields, the Japanese troops killed, captured or injured three quarters of a million Chinese troops nationalist troops, like the scale of it is gargantuan. That's like almost twice as many as America lost of total people in the entire war were lost in that, uh, you know, less than a year period from that one campaign, right? The scale is just mind boggling. The nationalists never recovered from that as part of the reason that they uh, fell to the communists after the war. Uh, the consequences were pretty dire. And part of that was due to Chenault's never ending faith in air power and what it could accomplish by itself or with very, very minimal help from indigenous troops on the ground. Yeah, it's an incredible story with this kind of scope and this kind of rise and fall narrative. And one of the things that I think this book really brings to the table is the sources that you've been able to use. You've done a lot of oral histories, you look at memoirs, and you've done a bunch of new interviews, and you've even looked at some Chinese sources as well. Those types of sources are always interesting to use. What did you find were some of the strengths and maybe challenges of those types of sources? That's a good question. So as you know, oral history has always got some difficulties inherent in it. And I ran into this in a, in a couple of ways. Uh, you know, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday sometimes. So expecting somebody to remember specific events from 80 years ago. But then as we know too, the myth-making process can be damaging as well. You know, this whole mythos that we have around the greatest generation makes it really hard to talk about certain topics like kill claims of fighter squadrons. You know, we know by looking at documents from both sides that those were inflated for various reasons. I don't think it, I'm, I'm not making any claims that it was because of it, ill will or somebody was lying on purpose or anything like that. But uh, having that conversation was very difficult with some folks. And I remember in, in my first book, one of the reasons I decided to write about the squadron that I did, the 449th, is that they didn't have anything to prove because they'd never had any legends built around them. Most people didn't know they existed. And so you could have those conversations. Hey, you know, in this dogfight, you guys claimed six and the Japanese said they only lost three. And they'd be like, oh yeah, well, it was, it was a confusing fight. We could have been shooting at the same ones. Maybe we really badly damaged this one, but it still managed to struggle back. Maybe the Japanese records were incomplete and all those things are valid things. But you talk to somebody from another unit, you'd be like, well, they're lying. The Japanese are lying. And usually there'd be some 
more colorful language used in that as well. But then uh, I remember I was interviewing a guy whose father helped rescue an American down in Southwest China. And so I'm getting this family story from him. And so now you have it transmitted across a generation too. And he talks about the end. I already know the American side of this because there's an evasion report that was written at the time, right? And he talks about at the end where this helicopter comes into the mountaintop and pulls this guy out. It's like, okay, well, there was not a single helicopter in China at this point. There were a couple that were brought in very, very late in the war that were not operating at that altitude because it was physically impossible for those early helicopters to do so. I know what happened, but this kind of became this mythos of this family story or whatever. And, and so he has this kind of imagined event as opposed to like the actual event. So parsing all of that is difficult. And so I really try and balance the oral history with the archival research that I was able to do. And by the way, I was able to do a decent amount of archival research from not just the American side too, because there's still uh, some Chinese records at the government level. Some of those in China, some of those on Taiwan are still archived. And I had some research partners there that were able to give me uh, translated reports from the uh, Republic of China and from the uh, People's Republic of China documentary evidence, which was hugely helpful in Thailand, where this kind of got into a little sideshow of, of this theater. Uh, they were able to find actual police reports from police officers that responded to uh, a couple of these uh, aircraft crashes. That was hugely helpful. And then obviously the, the evasion reports and the missing aircrew reports that have eyewitness statements from the time. And so you can kind of look at the other documentary evidence and kind of between all these oral histories and the documentary evidence and, and any physical evidence that might exist, you can kind of find where all those overlap. Uh, and so I, I strove to do that. And I think that was what I was trying to do is get away from pure anecdotal history, but still preserve those very personal stories that you get. And, and that's kind of how I tried to balance it by, by fusing all those sources together. I also strove to introduce more than just the American viewpoint, because that's what the vast majority of English language sources focuses on. You've got, you know, this fighter pilot's autobiography, you know, whether it's Tex Hill or Charlie Bond or something like that. And those are great books, uh, but they're so limited in scope and so dependent on that anecdotal viewpoint that it's really hard to get the big picture of what happened. And even the, the bigger American theater histories are so from the American perspective that you really struggle to see, like, what was this like for the Chinese people at the time? I, I went to China. I went to Thailand, I interviewed uh, eyewitnesses, I interviewed survivors, I interviewed people that rescued Americans and tried to uh, introduce their opinion, their viewpoint as much as possible. And then also you have Chinese pilots that are actually part of this too, because the United States set up this Chinese American composite wing to rebuild the Chinese Air Force in the midst of the conflict. These guys were shot down too. And did evasion reports that and uh, came back from behind enemy lines. And they actually contributed over 10% of the kill claims for enemy aircraft shot down were by Chinese pilots that were flying with American organizations. Uh, so that partnership went across all levels from rescuing folks in the field to actually fighting side by side in these air units to what we would call now uh, tactical air control parties actually embedded with Chinese troops at the front line calling in airstrikes. So the cooperation was comprehensive. So I felt like to the best of my ability, even with my Chinese language ability, is still fairly limited. You know, I, I wouldn't call myself fluent by, by any stretch. So as imperfectly as it was to try and expand the sources as much as possible to show the full scope and all the sides of that cooperative relationship. Well, I think that attempt to bring together the kind of scholarly side with this kind of anecdotal kind of personal side really worked well. And the result is a book that, you know, it has that scholarship to it, but it also kind of reads like a novel and it's really exciting and, and kind of a page turner. So uh, yeah, once again, it's uh, Daniel Jackson, Fallen Tigers, The Fate of America's Missing Airmen in China During World War II from University Press of Kentucky. So uh, where else can we find you online if people want to find more of your work? 
Well, Mike, I've got a website, ForgottenSquadron.com. There's a searchable database where you can search you know, by name or by type of aircraft or date range or anything on that website. So you can actually look at some of this raw data yourself. Some of the interview transcripts are up there and some other things as well. So ForgottenSquadron.com. Very cool. I'm online at nwhankins.com, on Twitter at Hankenstein with a T-I-E-N, and on Instagram at HankinsNW. Uh, all of us are online at balloons2drones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. If you'd like to send us an email, please go to balloons2drones.com slash contact, and feel free to submit an article to us for publication. Go to balloons2drones.com slash submissions. Thank you, everybody, and we will see you next time.